Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. It's time for us to look ahead. One of the things I love about this time of year is theatre companies around the country, orchestras and ensembles around the country, and indeed festivals all tell us what they're getting up to in 2023. So there are still dates in our diaries for 2022 and shows to tantalise and tease and be excited about, but that excitement builds when we look forward to the new year. I'm joined in the studio by Matthew Lutton, the Artistic Director of Malthouse Theatre, who launched their 2023 programme a few weeks ago while I was jaunting off casually overseas. Matthew Lutton, welcome back to Triple R. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to catch up with you. Before we talk in detail about Hmm. what is programmed for 2023, let's reflect on what the last few years have been like, not just lockdowns and cancellations, which we know played enormous havoc with Hmm. theatre companies and their programming, and Malthouse was one of those companies that adapted really smartly by going, we will do a a work in which audiences can be socially distanced and wander around, and if it gets paused, the actors can still be employed two months later. So forward thinking from Malthouse. But we know that all of that was happening, but what are some of the unseen impacts on the performing arts sector, particularly theatre, from the last two and a half years in terms of, I don't know, the the unseen stuff, the behind-the-scenes stuff that, as audiences, we don't know about but has impacted on your companies? Oh, look, I think um, there's been so much uh, resources put into the development of new work. Like, one thing that's been really exciting at the Malthouse is that when we couldn't be putting on uh, shows on stage, that we were commissioning a lot of artists to make sure that they're supported during the pandemic. And so, therefore, we have this huge wealth of uh, new projects that are sort of uh, bursting at the brims to get on stage. So, it's an exciting time to see. Uh, in many ways, we're going to, I think we're going to be catching up over the next few years with projects that have been gestated during the you know the pandemic during the, the dark years um, but also I think it's probably created a lot of reflection on what type of shows we want to be making what what does liveness mean you know I think there's a interesting when something sort of stops you as an artistic community that it, it forces a sort of maybe you know complex reflection period uh, so I think there's definitely a big conversation I'm encountering all the mo- all the time now about why is this theater why is it not on screen what why is this have to be on stage? And also, um, I think we're in such a political time at the moment that how we're trying to, you know, tell stories that are um, uh, that are not what we see in the news. You know, that we all want to be unpacking these big ideas, but at the same time, I think if we feel like we're reading, reading news articles on stage, then it feels like we're just being bashed over the head twice. So, yeah. what's you know, I think I think I'm really excited by what writers are starting to think about at the moment. There's something to to pull together there from a couple of the things you just said. The fact that there is a backlog of work, mm. but also that kind of news angle as well, and the contemporary. Mm. How will that impact on programming in two or three years' time if a work that was developed in 2020, 2020 2021 is only getting staged in 2025, for example, will it still feel contemporary? Will it still matter? I think this is always the the big question, really. I mean, this is the difficult thing about uh, timeliness of work and whether you're looking at something very specific um, or whether you're looking at, I guess, the undercurrents of the work itself. So I think those works that uh, where people are looking at actually how the turmoil that we're in at the moment, uh, how that connects to a bigger Zeitgeist. I think those works will be on stage in a few years' time. But, I mean, we've also done a lot of reflecting at the Malthouse about how to be more spontaneous and faster. So we're actually uh, we're no longer doing a full subscription season, for example. We don't announce things for the full year. So we're announcing several shows. Like we've announced five shows for next year and then three shows that are coming soon, which don't have dates announced yet, which don't have full teams, and it gives us the spontaneity. So if a writer comes with an incredible story that needs to be on stage in the next six months, we can be responsive and get that on stage. And it also means you've got the outdoor stage now yeah. as well, where you can program more work and, again, be flexible, be adaptive, whether that's adaptive 
adaptive to the seasons, whether that's adapted to the adaptive to the cultural calendar with comedy festival, midsummer, and so forth. Absolutely, like I think having the the outdoor stage has been. I mean, this is one of the sort of I guess silver linings of a difficult time is that suddenly being able to have another stage that only came about because of COVID uh, means that we can yeah have another strand of programming really pushing music and cabaret and comedy and a lot of that work can needs to be performed you know very spontaneously it's right now very current so we have a stage for that now yeah i noticed that belvoir up in sydney have got a big focus on music music theater Mm. in their 2023 season for example which is clearly uh, or not necessarily clearly but quite possibly a response to the the need for audiences to be uplifted Mm. at the moment when i see things like that part of me is like i can understand that but i also get worried about pandering to audiences yeah. going, oh, we'll just give them happy and feel good because that's all they need. I think we need to confront audiences mm. at the moment as well. We need catharsis, mm-hmm. for example. So grief, tragedy, perhaps even a bit of vampiric horror. <laughs> Interesting you mentioned that. Well, I mean, this is why uh, one of the shows that we're doing early on in the next year in February is Nosferatu, uh, written by Akezia Warner. And it's a reinvention of the vampire myth. Um, we tend to do a lot of plays that are set in Tasmania at the moment. So this is a vampire that's lured to a Tasmanian town that is um, having problems with its economy and can't find any solutions and therefore the benefactor arrives with um, a mysterious plan. Uh, He has incredible soil that's full of nutrients and will help the vineyards grow and uh, the town turns a blind eye when people start to disappear in the town. Uh, So, I mean, what's fantastic about this is it's unpacking a really playful, fun camp mythology around the vampire. But at the same time, I think there's a whole lot of uh, very bigger, serious issues about what we do when we're desperate in, you know, to, to find growth and to find um, prosperity. That notion of uh, vampire is metaphor for capitalism, mm-hmm. for example, is clearly going to be played out there. And Tasmania makes a, a very logical place for a vampire <laughs> to go to. Have, the last time I was in Hobart, I was going, oh, but it's getting dark and it's only four o'clock in the afternoon. See, that's why they choose, you know, very selective, knows the weather patterns yeah uh, something else that's on next year and which i'm really looking forward to seeing having been um not devastated but certainly mm. disappointed when it was cancelled is the adaptation of the christos chalkers novel loaded yeah. which again showing the way that malthouse adapted to lockdown conditions and COVID and so forth when the original season of that was cancelled it came back as an audio work mm. and now it's come full circle and is coming back to the stage yeah it's a fact, I mean, I love Christos's novel and it's been adapted to the stage by Stephen DiColazzo and Dan Giovannone and Christos himself. Uh, and it tells the story of Ari and his sort of 24 hours of sort of the nightlife and queer nightlife in Melbourne and love and drugs and the journey that he goes on. Um, it's incredible. Uh, and when we did uh, the audio version, it was, it was fantastic because he listens to music constantly. The headphone and the music is uh, Ari's sort of vehicle throughout the story. Um, it was fantastic as an audio experience, but I think we want the sweaty in your, you know, live experience. So I think Stephen Nicolazzo is cre- uh, planning this one-man show, one-person show that will feel like you're um, in the clubs with Ari and going on that odyssey with him. When did you first encounter Loaded as a text, as a novel? Did you read it when it first came out in the... Which no, was it? it was actually one of the books I read when I first moved to Melbourne. So I think I, I sort of saw it as a Melbourne text and I better bet initiate myself into it. And I remember going, you know, I was going, oh my goodness, what is this? And then... then um, Love the fact that it, the book talks about the Peel and I was hanging out at the Peel when I first arrived in Melbourne. I went, this is great. This is my story. I also love the fact that the novel is, yes, it's it's a very 90s novel in a way. It's part of that whole grunge lit scene that was uh, being both reviled and celebrated in the mid-90s, for example. But as you say, it is a very Melbourne novel because it divide, the novel is divided up into, what, north, south, east, west. Yes. So acknowledging those different facets of Melbourne and the different cultures that contribute to creating the city we live in today. It's a it's a gloriously vital novel. Absolutely. Like, it moves from the different the suburbs, they go into gentrification, and we were seeing the Greek community and how that relationship to queerness and uh, I, I love it so that it does feel like a tour of Melbourne all set you know at 3am really like I, I love the fact that you're um, going to across the river what that means and uh, all the different you know corners of the city. One of the things that Malthouse has been developing a reputation for and has been unable to focus on the last few years because of COVID again is that those kind of international connections, Mm. whether it be new international plays or working with 
directors from another country. Talk to us about how that's being reflected and, and picked up again uh, in 2023. Well, certainly that's been really challenging because with lack of travel, it's been really hard to keep those connections going. But one that we've uh, had a really strong connection with is an artist called Wang Chong, who's uh, based in Beijing. Uh, he was the guest director for us and directed Little Emperors, Lachlan Philpott's play a few years ago. And uh, Wang Chong is also a performer and theatre maker in his own right. And he's creating a work called Made in China 2.0, which is about his experiences around the world dealing with censorship, censorship and art making. And uh, Wang Chong is an extraordinary person because he actually he lives his art. You know, he lives in Beijing in an apartment that doesn't have any electricity by choice because of his greening policy, greening ethics. Um, he every work that he creates is a sort of manifesto. So this is him talking about how do you? Um, it's, it's like a lecture style performance where he uh, goes through his experiences of how he navigates what happens when uh, you see things in the world but you're prevented to talk about them, and how you create art out of, out of that. How do you create out, art out of things you can't talk about? Uh, symbolism. <laughs> you, I mean, I think that becomes the power of what, uh, how you can galvanise people behind symbols and how you use a symbol and how a symbol becomes elusive or becomes larger than history itself. Is that one of the reasons he fascinates you as a director? Because you're a director who loves uh, visual theatre, for example, and a striking image. Mm. So is, is there a resonance there between the two of you? Yeah, I think we both love the fact that uh, we think about theatre. Um, I think we often think about if you couldn't hear anything on stage and we'll just watch it, that what you're watching is communicating just as much uh, if you couldn't hear anything, so that the visual language of theatre should be just as compelling as the text. If we're speaking about text, an, an artist whose text is always, uh, let's see, uh, kind of playful, provocative, <laughs> subversive, silly, uh, in your face, Ash Flanders, who currently has a show up at Griffin, end of, which yeah. I'm hearing great things about. Mm. Uh, there's a new work from Ash next year. This is living in the Malthouse season. Yeah, this is... Uh outrageously hilarious. It's just very, very funny, but also incredibly honest. If you know Ash and you know any of his projects, then you know that it always comes from a very self-lacerating sense of, you know, self-deprecating uh, uh, reflection, but is in laugh-out-loud funny. And This Living is a strange project in, well, not strange, unexpected, because Ash is, um, well, you know, we know Ash from things like Calpurnia Descending and his work with Sisters Grimm, which is just radically wild and theatrical. And he proposed, I'd like to write a five-act naturalistic play that's set in one location over a weekend and that was surprising and what it means is that all the inventiveness is channeled into these five characters so it's a queer couple and three divorcees that go to Hepburn, Hepburn Springs with a lot of hydroponics and hope to get away for the weekend of course everything starts to fall apart. To pick up on something you said earlier why is this a play and not a tv show or a film? Ah because I think it's about intimacy I think this is a play that uh, I'm very excited theatrically about how you can feel like you're sitting in the room in in the Airbnb with these characters. So we're exploring at the Malthouse. Uh, I'm not going to give it away how we plan to do it, but um, we're trying to make the space as intimate so you're feeling like you're inside the house with these five characters. And I hope it will feel like you're uh, going on a high with them. Not everything has been announced yet, but uh, one of the works that has been announced that we haven't talked about isn't it, I think, the very first production to open the season. It's um, a co-production with Darlinghurst Theatre Company, I believe. It is. It's what's created by a Sydney company called Green Door that, and a premiere at Darlinghurst Theatre in Sydney, and it's Seven Methods of Killing Kylie Jenner, which we were hoping to do this year but had to postpone. Uh, and this is it's a British play about, uh, about two women that are sort of... Uh, go on a Twitter spiral when they attack Kylie Jenner for the commodification of black women. And this this plays uh, this play makes me feel really old. Like I just watch it and go, I don't this is an incredible sense of the way that social media spirals out of control and it's a world that I um, am fascinated in and and I'm glad that I'm not caught up in its turmoil. Um, but this is an incredible production that uh, Zinzi and Shari Sebens have co-directed, um, and this is a play we've been desperate to bring down to Melbourne for a long time. Which is going to be an increasingly interesting challenge now. Mm. Not, I'm not going to say post-COVID because we're still in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, but the fact that touring is going to become more challenging with artists having to be replaced. The fact that the cost of shipping freight is uh, more fraught and more challenging for companies. And even, in fact, the, the fact that supply lines mean that set materials that used to be easily available are not 
so easily available now. How is all that impacting on a company like Malthouse? Oh, it, it directly. Like, it absolutely shifts our, our thinking about who we collaborate with. Like, it's interesting. It pushes things to be more local because you start to feel like uh, actually travel and exchange across state lines and with other countries becomes more expensive. So it becomes a real... Uh, investment to do. So there's definitely a turn to local, but it also just means the cost of making theatres going up. And that's uh, a challenge which uh, we don't really have really good answers for at the moment, is how to... Because we don't want to increase the ticket prices, of course. But um, absolutely, material costs are going up, so we have to be more creative sometimes with a little bit less. If we're having local conversations more, does that mean that Malthouse and the MTC are talking more frequently, for example? Yeah, I think uh, well, I think both companies, um, I mean, we've always had conversations, but I think now there's, a, uh, again, a part of the coming out of the pandemic, there's a lot of talk between all the companies. Um, and I think this is now going to continue uh, more thoroughly after um, I'm really enjoying the conversations with MTC. And Matt, just to wrap up, as you've suggested, there's things that are being hinted at for next year mm. or kind of that are announced but not confirmed in terms of dates and details. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that aspect of the 2023 season? Yeah, there's three projects that we're definitely going to do, but we're going to find the best time to do them uh, over the next few months. Um, one is we have a new resident uh, company. Uh, they're called the Daylight Connection. It's a new company uh, formed by Kamara Bell-Wikes and Carly Shepherd. So it's a company, a First Nations led company um, that are creating a series of work so they'll be premiering a new work. We've got a new play by Alistair Baldwin called Telephone Kid. And then we're also picking up our new obsession with immersive theatre and creating an enormous new work called Hour of the Wolf where we'll create an entire cursed town stuck at 3am and uh, all the mythology that occurs in that town for you to explore. And what stories of M? Stories of M is our new digital archive. So one of the digital projects that we, um, to use that word, pivot, uh, we did during uh, the COVID, the pandemic times, was uh, created an archive um, which is online and it's there now, storiesofm.com. You can go find it. And it has every show and every artist that's worked in the company for the last 45 years online. So it's got a search engine, basically, for all those shows. So I think there's more than 650 shows and more than 4,500 artists and their profiles and their work are catalogued. So that goes back to the the dim, dark past well before Malthouse was actually Malthouse. It goes back to when it was Playbox. It even goes back to when it was Hoopla. So it goes right back. Uh, it's got as much documentation as we can of those shows because it's about, uh, we you know, we have a terrible amnesia in our community and as a country, but it's about trying to remember what's come before us, what's the shows that we've made. And it's amazing when you type in certain artists' names and you can track back what they've been making for 30 years. It's incredible. I will definitely have to explore that and dive in. So I love the fact that the Malthouse is looking back, but also looking forward to 2023 and beyond with the works that we've been discussing with Matthew Lutton, the company's artistic director. For more info about all the productions uh, that are confirmed for 2023 and that are that will be on in 2023 with dates to be confirmed, go to malthousetheatre.com.au, plus more shows to be locked in later mm. for for next year. Yes, there's definitely more. We'll be announcing our season for the outdoor stage, the comedy festival, and in March next year we're going to announce all the final dates and a few maybe special projects. Looking forward to finding out more. Matthew Lutton, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Triple R. Melbourne Fringe is in full swing. So a little bit later in the show, we'll be talking about uh, some circus, a show I saw last night, in fact. But right now it's time for us to talk comedy. Uh, and I'm joined in the studio by Natalie Caro, who is, amongst other things, a drag king, a DJ, uh, has also produced this show that they're presenting, um, but is also a comedian themselves. So, Natalie, thanks for joining us and welcome to Triple R and indeed to Melbourne. Thank you so much for having me. And yes, I am very talented. What an honour to be on Smart Arts. Now, very talented and also uh, with a strong and sharp and well-defined sense of humour. You did a show in <laughs> Sydney not too long ago, which was kind of focused on getting a manager, getting yeah. an agent. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I thought it was a very clever way of just, you know, showing everything that I have to offer. And I really wanted an agent. And I was like, why am I not getting signed? Um, so I did a showreel type show where I just do everything. Um, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. This new show is also, I hope, going to be a lot of fun. It's a, a lineup show rather yes. than a solo show, which you're producing. It's called Thanks for Having Me. And it's really, amongst other things, it's acknowledging the fact that comedy, stand-up comedy and the comedy scene is not always a safe place for people of colour, particularly yeah. if you're the only person of colour, not only on the bill, but perhaps in the whole room. Yes, it happens a lot. You'd be surprised. Um, I, it's made, I've made it a part of my sets where I do have to ask the audience because I don't really know where the set's going to go, if they're going to take it well or not. Um, but it's no secret that Australian comedy is a little bit far behind the rest of the world and lineups are extremely white um, everywhere, everywhere in Australia. And so I do want to create this as a space for not only the comedians to have fun and be seen and feel that response that they deserve, but also to bring in audiences that maybe they don't like comedy because what they've seen is just themselves be the butt of the joke. So they come in and they're like, oh, this is actually funny because this is something that, you know, I can relate to. It's one of the things that fascinates me about comedy as an art form is the way comedy has shifted over, say, the last several decades. So we hear a lot now about punching up versus punching yes. down. And it wasn't that long ago that I still remember reading uh, some, uh, a, somebody's impressions of a gig where as um, a middle-aged, middle-class Anglo-Saxon Australian, they were like, oh, they were making jokes about white people and oh. that's racist. And I'm like... Is it racist, though, if it's punching down and – sorry, if it's punching up and it's kind of making – it's showing you how racism works by by using humour – uh, and I was still like, oh, we've got a long way to go. Absolutely. I mean, I get that a bit in my sets. It can be divisive. Usually there, you know, I pull people in on the joke. I never want to uh, exclude someone or make them feel ostracised in an audience. I want to, like, playfully, you know, give them some self-awareness. But I do think it's so funny that as soon as you flip the joke on, let's just say, white people um, – they, they'll get offended and go, this is racist. But it's like, hold on, how have you been getting away with this for several hundred thousands of years and you can't? It's like picking in the middle. You can't get in the middle. The sheer fact that suddenly because you are no longer the focus, you yes. are the butt of the joke, is it's not a, it shouldn't be offensive. And for, I, w I would hope that for a lot of audiences, particularly at Melbourne Fringe, where Thanks for Having Me is being staged, that yes. a lot of people will be in on the joke and will be able to laugh at themselves. Yes. But the fact that you still have to kind of, I don't know, not necessarily tiptoe your way through the the minefields of, of what is or is not funny and who's going to confront you afterwards to, to complain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a scary game. I mean, I have fun and, you know, I've grown to be, like, self-assured in what I'm doing. And that I always just do it for those people. It doesn't matter if I get – recently I had a white man – I would have preferred if he said something, but he really just cornered me in the room, looked me up and down and gave me a very stern look as if he was my father disapproving. <laughs> um, but you know what? I don't care because for every white man that does that, I have so many other people of color saying, thank you for creating this or keep doing what you're doing. I really loved your set. And those are the people that I do it for. You reminded me of being at the Melbourne International Comedy a few, several years ago, yeah. probably more than several years ago now, when uh, Fear of a Brown Planet was still performing kind of as a as a duo uh, and coming out of a room and just going, oh, there's a whole bunch of people lined up to see the next show who aren't white. Kind of, yeah. And the fact that 10 or 12 years ago that still felt like a radical act yeah. kind of was a reminder of just how easy it is for me as a kind of middle-aged, middle-class, cisgendered queer man to just go, oh... I haven't noticed that there's nobody else in the room who's not white because that's my default setting. Yes. And so having comedians who can, whether taking us by the hand or giving us a push from behind to say, hey, wake up a little bit and realise that the world, that you do have blinkers on. And that's what I love about comedy, that, that comedy can, can make us laugh but make us think 
at the same time. Absolutely. Comedy is the most kind of accessible way of changing someone's mind because as soon as they laugh, I think they're really taking the thought in rather than, you know, being sad or angry, etc. Natalie, how did you get into comedy to begin with? How did I get into comedy? You know what? It's one of those things that I always thought that I was going to do. I also worked in comedy. I worked at the comedy store as a bartender in Sydney. Um, but I was like, oh, I've got my whole life. I'll get to that when I'm 30 plus. Um, but I started doing sketch comedy at University Reviews in Sydney, Arts Review, which is, you know, where like Aaron Chen started out and the Chaser Boys. It has just like this big name for comedy. And all my friends were doing it. And I was like, if they can do it, I can do it. And I just did a stand up open mic one day and it wasn't that good, but I saw the potential and I've been having fun ever since. So, And having fun, but also like to, thinking about that, that first gig, that kind of raw yeah. gig, um, you got something out of it. I'm sure some of the audience got something out of it. Talk to us about learning to, to be funnier and learning to, oh. to make people laugh because the, 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 the process, the creative process of writing comedy, developing a whole show beyond just a four-minute routine or a five-minute routine for a club or something, it fascinates me how people make comedy happen. Yes. Well, first of all, it's funny that you say that I got something out of it because that night I actually had to come out to my sister. So <laughs> I did and she got something out of it too. No, but... um. Yeah, making comedy, like, it's not going to hit straight away. You might acknowledge that, you know, you're a funny person and there's something there. But for me, it was really about finding the audiences that really understood who I was and appreciated. A lot of comedians and, like, you know, the veterans will go on and on about, you know, you've got to earn your keep and you've got to slog it out and you've got to do all the open mics and you've got to do it in rooms that won't like you. And I don't think that's beneficial for people who have intersectional identities because they're going to walk away feeling jaded and ostracized and othered, which is not good for comedy. Um, and probably loses people. Exactly. It deters people. There, I know a lot of people who had a lot of potential, but they're like, nah, it's not for me. It's not safe. So it's about doing things, easing your way in, finding people that appreciate you. And for me, that also extended to friends. Like I grew up with white friends at a Catholic school and it wasn't until I was surrounded by people of color that I actually said something and everyone laughed and they were like, you're so funny. And I was like, what? What do you mean I'm funny? Because I was just sitting on jokes and, you know, uh, what's the expression? Holding my tongue. And I wouldn't say anything. I was a very different person. So it is about finding finding your audience. That's it. And finding an audience who are on your wavelength. Yes. Which, again, there's plenty of comedians who will go, oh, I don't want to perform at that club because I don't like the atmosphere. It's a bit aggressive. It's a bit blokey, whatever it may be. Uh, so it makes total sense that, yeah, find your community, find your crowd who are also going to have a shared and common experience and are going to get your jokes and get your routines and material as well, which isn't to say that those jokes won't work on a broader audience. Exactly. But again, there's something about that, the specific nature of a shared experience where you can just go, it, it's one of the reasons I love seeing queer comedians as a queer man. It's kind of like, yeah. I, I can laugh at jokes that other audiences won't laugh at. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, we talk about, we've all been talking about Jerry Seinfeld for a million years doing observational comedy, and it's exactly that same thing, is why not have a POC or a queer person or a trans person make an observational joke about our lived experiences. Of course, it's going to hit, it's going to pull some heartstrings. Now, Natalie, before we talk a little bit more in detail about some of the other performers on the bill, thanks for having me. I wanted to acknowledge the fact that, yes, you are a drag king. Are we going to see your drag king persona uh, performing at any of these shows? No, not at this one. This one I'm keeping it straight stand-up. Straight, uh, really? Yeah, exactly. Very very queer POC stand-up. Um, I haven't mixed the worlds yet, but I do in Sydney run a queer comedy cabaret called Gag, and that is very much I do my drag thing and I mix the comedy thing and I do some singing. But for thanks for having me... Um, we're really all just going to give it our best stand-up for you. Who's on the bill? Because it's a oh, different lineup each, every each of the four nights. Yeah. yeah, it's 13 comedians. It's huge. I'm so chuffed with all these people who decided to come on. We've got Aidan Jones. We've got Aurelia St. Clair, Patrick Dernan Silva, J.Y. Mara. We have Andy Saunders headlining on Sunday. 
Like, hello. Can you imagine? It's so cool. Uh, we've got Sananda, Irvi Majumda, um, Matthew Vasquez. I'm sorry if I'm leaving anyone out, but it's it's huge. And you have to check is, out every yeah. single night. It's a lot to remember. And I'm guessing people would have been jumping at the opportunity to, to perform on this bill as well. Well, jumping, I'm not sure because perhaps they don't know me because I'm from Sydney. But I did reach out and everyone was... Once the ball started rolling, I did get people start to message me, go, can I get on that POC lineup? Can I get on this? I'll do whatever. I've got people coming from Sydney t- to be on this lineup. And, yeah, I think POC comics are really craving to have that safe space because, yeah. I was just going to say, the fact that people are coming from Sydney yes. to perform on a bill of one of four nights at Melbourne Fringe suggests what the the hunger and the need for these kind of nights are. Absolutely. I'm... You know, I wish that uh, this wasn't still impactful, that, you know, maybe I wasn't selling tickets because people are like, oh, we've seen it before, but that's not the case. And it's, you know, 2022. Um, hopefully I can pass on the baton to another marginalised group sooner rather than later. But at the moment, it's, yeah, it's extraordinary that people, uh, this is still kind of like a wow thing. It's quite radical. Which is kind of depressing. Yes. But, but then when you look at the world of comedy, the fact that I regularly see lineups where um, there's only one woman on the bill, oh, for example, or God. one gender diverse performer on the bill, yes. and the rest is blokes. It's yes. like, right, it's 2022 and we don't even have gender diversity yet. In, in, in a lot of comedy rooms, there are some great ones around. Obviously, I'm not saying tarring them all with the same brush, but we've still got a long way to go. A very long way. But yeah. we can laugh along the way. That's what we're doing. Let's just have some fun. Let's when we get there, then we can have a break, but we'll be having some good fun till then. Produced by Natalie Caro. That's me. Thanks for having me is happening tonight, Friday night and Saturday night at 8:45 p.m. and yes. Sunday night at 7:45 p.m. Yes. In the quilt room at Trades Hall, which is the, f- the hub for this year's Melbourne Fringe, and more info and tickets at melbournefringe.com.au. Thanks for having me. Is a comedy night for queer and queer artists and artists of colour, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be bloody funny because looking at some of those names on the bill, I'm like, yeah, there's some talent there for sure. But, Natalie, before I let you go... Obviously, we've been talking about and focused on thanks for having me. There's so many other shows. So many shows. In Melbourne Fringe. Anything you want to give a quick shout-out to that we should be also driving people towards in these last few nights of Fringe? Absolutely. I'll also say the Sunday night show of Thanks for Having Me is Auslan Interpreter, just putting it out there. Uh, I'm so excited. There is a great showcase happening till... I think it's three more nights. Um, Tea for Tea showcase produced by Ollie Lawrence and Anna Piper Scott. Uh, I did the last two nights and it's so beautiful it's very life affirming if you're trans go get tickets because it is fun um i also really want to catch miss cairo who is um trans poc a comedian community builder artist cabaret singer like what can't she do um so i'm going to try and catch that these next few nights and yeah there's a lot there's a hell of a There's lot. A lot. <laughs> Jump online, melbournefringe.com.au to book to see. Thanks for having me on in the quilt room at Trades Hall as part of the Festival Hub tonight, Friday night and Saturday night at 8.45, 7.45 p.m. Sunday, which is the Auslan Interpreted Night. So do get along to one of those four performances. Natalie Caro, thanks heaps for coming in. Thanks for having me. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Something that might help you, I don't know, curate your fringe over the few nights remaining is the fact that the first group of Melbourne Fringe 2022 award nominees have been announced. Now, these include uh, in Cabaret, uh, Juniper Rising, on until the 22nd of October. Uh, In Comedy, Anna Piper Scott, such an inspiration, on until the 23rd. Great show, saw that that at Comedy Festival, highly recommend it. Um, In Theatre, you're all invited to my son Samuel's fourth birthday party, uh, which finished last night, and I luckily saw it last night. Great show. Uh, Sirens, on until the 23rd of October, which I've also seen, and is, in terms of theatre, the standout show I've seen at the Fringe 
this year. And in Circus, the nominees include Zoe, whose season has already finished, and a show called Gods, which is on until the 23rd of October and which I saw last night. Gods is created by headfirst acrobats who... Have, I've got two members of the company in the studio now. We have Tom Gorham and Cal Harris. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Uh, Tom, we'll start with you. Kind of, this is a show which melds uh, a bit of physical comedy uh, with some uh, skilled circus and a dose of mythology from ancient Greece as well. Why add mythology to a show? Uh, um, it's very historically accurate, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's fun. Mythos is fun. Um, the archetypal characters that are in the Greek god world are perfect um, for situational comedy. Uh, we've just had an absolute blast posing around doing these kind of things and playing tricks as them. Uh, I can't think of a more perfect um, situation than Greek gods. And Cal, this certainly isn't the first time that your mob has done uh, a theme show. You've done a, a Western slash cowboy show previously, for example. Yeah, we, we like to mix it up with the themes. I feel like a modern contemporary circus has, a, has a, an approach of, of stripping circus back and we're trying to add back the... Add it back. <laughs> so you're the anti-circa, is that what you're saying? <laughs> whoa, whoa, yeah, not my you said words. it, not <laughs> So one of the things that was uh, great fun about last night was watching kind of the rapport between the, the four of you on stage. You've, you clearly trust each other, uh, both physically and as, as people, as artists as well. How long have you all been performing together? Oh, well, Cal and I have been performing together for nearly 10 years now, so we've built a huge amount of trust. Um, but the, the new guys, Jordan and Liam, we brought in specifically for this project. We headhunted them um, through a big list of people, and uh, we trust them absolutely with our lives, and we just have a lot of fun together as well. How do you go about headhunting a circus artist? We actually did, a, uh, we did an audition call-out, and I think we got, um, what, Two, two applications, <laughs> <laughs> which is a bit of a shock. We, I don't know. I think we expect a few more, but you know, we, the circus community, although it's quite large, it's actually really, really small. So we know most people in the industry. That is certainly the impression I get of the circus sector. That yeah, it's. I mean, it's relatively large in that it's spread across the country geographically. Whether it's Perth or Adelaide, uh, with GOM in Adelaide, for example, and Circa and various other companies up in Brisbane. But, yeah, it's widespread but thinly spread as well because it, it's a relatively small scene. So does that make it then harder to, I don't know, to, to carve out a niche if, if it is such a small sector where everybody already knows each other? Does it make it then harder to differentiate yourself from uh, your, your friends and peers and colleagues? Um, it, it makes it harder to cast because, um, like I said, we've got two official applications and about 20 different messages just being like, hey, can I be in it? <laughs> I'm like, send in an application. <laughs> um, but in terms of... Uh, making your own art and making yourself visible um, from the scene, we've actually found it, it pretty easy because um, the trend in circus right now and has been for quite a while is to turn yourself away from narrative structure and storyline telling. Um, and that's all we want to do is we just want to tell a hilarious story. Um, so for us, making our name and making our style has been easy. Um, but that's a lucky thing, maybe. Why do you enjoy storytelling so much? Oh, well, I mean, any time that you watch something, um, if you think of, like, all the best movies, comic books, books you've ever read, they haven't left out too many details. The, most, the best ones are the ones that are the most well-constructed, that build the biggest world. Um, you know, there are works of art that are very stripped back and they're, they're gorgeous and, you know, the the detail is in, in your own mind and you make your own story. Um, but honestly, our approach is to be as constructive as possible and not lazy at all. We want, we want you to know what we're saying. So narrative is clearly important too, and comedy is clearly important as well, because this is, Gods is a show in which when the audience aren't gasping or, or applauding, they're laughing. Why do you want to have comedy as such a, a strong aspect of the show, Cal? I think it's just another layer to the entertainment yeah. Skills are one thing. You gotta you gotta walk out with sore sore cheeks and sore sore tummy. 
Well, it was certainly effective last night. People were kind of laughing and having a, a great time. We should also note that this is an 18 and over show as well. So maybe don't bring your 13 along, 13-year-old <laughs> along, unlike last night. When, which, <laughs> when, when, you, when front of house come in and say, oh, God, there's going to be a kid in the audience tonight, what's your response and what do you do? Do you just ban them? Do you just say, oh, do we have to change the show at all? Um, we prefer not to change the show. We just have certain rules. Um, I mean, if they're adamant that their kid is, you know, adult enough to see it, we're like, yes, your kid's adult enough to see it, but maybe everyone else doesn't want to see your kid seeing it. <laughs> so we tend to put them away from the front row. So we just make sure that the kid is in the back so that people don't see us doing very adult humour to an underage person. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fair enough. I yeah. think, yeah, you want to keep those working with children licences kind of rather yeah. than getting into trouble. Absolutely. <laughs> That said, yes, it's a it's a, a, sh- uh, a show aimed at older audiences, but it's not a. I wouldn't say it's a particularly kind of. Uh, it's playfully risque, but it's not a kind of in-your-face, crass kind of no holds barred kind of show either. I think if, I think the main difference between our adult shows and our kids shows is the amount of clothing that we wear. <laughs> Other than that, they're the same show. <laughs> well, when you announced last night that you have a kids show, that got a, a, a round of laughter, but somewhat dis- disbelieving laughter, perhaps. Yeah, I have to kind of reassure them after I say that. I was like, yeah, we've got a kids show. No, no, really, we, we do. Please come to it too. <laughs> Which has been a bit of a trend in... Uh, uh, I guess on the f- the fringe scene, not just in Australia but internationally as well, particularly over the last decade, people who are doing stand up comedy for adult audiences, doing a kids show, for example, or in your case, a circus show for adults and then a circus show for kids during the day. Why double up like that? Is it just an opportunity to maximise box office by doing two shows, or is it a chance to, I don't know, push yourselves as as artists by diversifying your material, your routine, and and your ideas? It's everything. It's both um, commercially a good choice to put more shows on, but there's also the fact that kids deserve to see great entertainment. And I see a lot of children's shows where um, things are stripped back for the kids, and I was like, that's not our approach at all. We crank it up. We do hard tricks. We go really hard and get really tired for the kids, and and that's why they love it. And they deserve to see really great circus, so that's another reason that we put it on. And am I right in thinking, Tom, that one of the other reasons you created the kids show was because you'd injured yourself in railed the, the kind of Western cowboy yes. show. So um, that then forced you to actually go, right, what, what else can we make? What can we do if I can't perform? Absolutely. And it wasn't just an injury. We also um, had been touring with Cal's partner, Chelsea, for quite a while. And we only ever had um, a cabaret slot for her. And we wanted to give her more full-time work because she's an amazing artist and she'd been with us since the beginning. So we decided to make a show that would be like my entrance point back into the company and Chelsea's show. And she's since become like the show captain of Prehysterical and she fosters the other artists as they come through. So it's been a great opportunity for her um, with us and also for, for me um, to get back on stage when I was in a bad spot. I've interviewed a few different artists from different uh, performance disciplines, all physical, kind of dance, circus, uh, physical theatre and so forth, to to talk about the challenge of of industry in your work. And I don't want to focus on that because it's bad enough when you're an audience member sitting there going, something terrible could happen. (laughs) And that's part of the thrill. You don't want anything terrible to happen. But injury is a risk in your line of work. Talk to us about the challenge of getting through and past an injury because if if your whole self-identity is built around being a circus performer for example or being a dancer or even being an AFL footballer and you suddenly are injured and can't work how does that impact on you and how do you work through that uh, that's a very important thing to talk about, and I feel like um, that's something that really needs to be covered um, in the circus education system. Um, I went to NICA, Cal went to NICA. Um, the first time that I had a critical injury, I did kind of have a sort of um, self-implosion um, because it has so happened to come at a tough time um, for the business and for me personally. Um, but the second time that I had an injury and I was all over the processes, like the work cover process, um, the rehabilitation process, getting myself, um, setting goals, knowing to create a show that I could step back into was a, a lot easier. And um, I've watched a lot of people uh, crumple um, with injuries and I've watched a lot of people who just didn't know exactly what to do. So um, I would say 
it's very important. It's something that needs to be talked about. And there are things that you can set yourself in place to make sure that you are come back stronger, healthier, fitter in the mind. Um, and there are things that you should definitely not do. <laughs> Cal, in terms of your path into circus, so yes, you trained at Nike as well, but were you doing street performance before that? Yeah, I was, I guess, technically a professional street performer at 14. So I was out uh, on the South Bank concrete in, in winter in the rain, putting my hat out, trying to get some cash. <laughs> what, what kind of performance were you doing, and how did that feed into uh, training at, at Nike? So I actually saw a performer on Australia's Got Talent on a balance ladder when I was maybe 10. His name's Nick Abishev. He's an incredible acrobat. And I saw his apparatus, and I was like, I, I want that. So I went out, bought a ladder, and then I guess the only place to to really learn it is out on the street, and it's a it's a slippery slope. You put your hat out, you start doing tricks, and and that developed. Met Tom, and we started doing shows on the street together as well, and then the circus school, and yeah. I mean, he makes it sound like uh, I helped him on the street. He absolutely <laughs> was a superstar street performer. He's being he's being very uh, what's the word? Self deprecating. Self deprecating. <laughs> I watched him do shows to five hundred people on South Bank, and I was like, oh my god, you have to teach me street performing. This guy is good. How do you adapt those street performance skills where uh, you don't have lighting, you probably don't have sound, it's just you? How do you adapt that skill set? into performing in a show where, amongst other things, yes, uh, Gods is nominated for Best Circus Show in the festival. I'd like to nominate it for Best Use of a Ramstein Track in a show, for example. <laughs> so lighting and sound clearly play a significant role in making a show like this. But how do you go from the raw basics of performing on the street to adding in all of those extra elements and crafting a full show? I think that the transition the other way is actually... So uh, street performing is more the foundation of of the stage show, learning all those basics of, of crowd control and engagement and, and keeping people involved. Applying that to, to being on stage is, is easy. But if you start as a stage performer and you're like, oh, I've got this, I've got my audience, and go out on the street and try and do a show, it's actually the hardest thing you'll ever do. So I think I, got very, <laughs> I think I got very lucky that street performing was, was my first, you know. And, Tom, for you, you got into circuit through breakdancing. Yeah, originally uh, breakdancing. It's, um, it's a strange path, but uh, I loved the physicality of breakdancing. I really enjoyed it as a, as a sport and as a lifestyle. Um, and eventually I found circuits because it turns out being a professional breakdancer in the early 2000s was hard. <laughs> <laughs> Which also reinforces the fact that, and it's one of the things, again, that I love about the contemporary circus world, yes, some of the people working in the, the circus sector will have, I don't know, uh, started at a youth circus company in Canberra, moved on to the Flying Fruit Fly Circus when they got to uh, secondary school, then gone to NICA and then moved into the performance world. Other people get into circus and into NICA because they're an ac uh, kind of uh, an athlete, for example. They might have been doing gymnastics and have segued from gymnastics into circus. Does that, having that kind of rich and diverse performance background, not just in your company, but in other companies. How does that strengthen and enrich circus as an art form, do you think, rather than everybody just having the same career path? Oh, I mean, diversity is everything, especially when it comes to skills and training. Um, so without uh, the circus school part, so without having all the community circus people who have like such broad backgrounds, then there wouldn't be very many generalists. Um, so a lot of kids that go through the circus pathway, they end up able to juggle, do Diablo, do group work, do hoop diving, do all these kinds of things which make up the foundation of all the partnerships in a circus show. But then without the gymnasts, then the skill level would be much lower because gymnastics is probably the most difficult sport on earth. Um, to achieve any level of competence in it is an absolute milestone of athleticism hats off to them um and the circus recognizes that and obviously my background being breakdancing is very rare in circus and brings a unique flavor of movement so um circus welcomes all types and all bodies and all training with open arms and if you've got something weird bring it on stage am i right in thinking you guys own the vault that's your own your own space 
That's our baby. Why did you decide to buy a circus tent slash performance space, particularly over the last couple of years of financial hardship and peril and lockdowns for companies? What possibly possessed you to go and invest in, a, in your own structure like this? I say, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> we just really wanted one. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like as a circus performer, you, you want to run away and join the circus. And with uh, not many circuses around to join these days, we thought we'd just build our own. <laughs> Which then also means you can hire out kind of your performance space yeah. to other shows, other artists, and other festivals as well. Yeah. So again, diversifying that income stream, which, as any artist who lived through the pandemic knows, is important to be able to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we're not going to be young forever, um, so it's good to have some kind of a business plan for <laughs> when we're in our fifties. And maybe we'll still be ripping it. I don't know. <laughs> Something to fall back on is what you're saying, yeah. <laughs> rather than falling back onto one another or into one another's arms. Uh, so God's is the evening show as we said it's inspired by greek mythology uh it's uh playful and uh i overheard somebody describing it in the audience uh loudly describing it as a big gay circus show um uh uh, I noticed that same guy a little bit later on almost nodding off. I think the beers had caught up with him. When he was actually my audience volunteer for the whole show. So I, I pick him at the start for, for a moment. And then I, I can't really explain this without giving it away. But I needed him at the end of the show and I went to walk over to him and he was nodded off. And yeah. his mate was kind of hitting him in the, in the side and he just wouldn't wake up. He was and then so that drunk. broke me. So I'm <laughs> laughing at the end of the show. No one else really knows what's going on. It's a good time. Good time. Yeah. So if uh, I should have asked, did you do any kind of, not kind of like detailed, serious investigation of Greek myth, but how did you choose the, the gods and the, the, I guess, the, the, the archetypes that you're uh, tapping into for this show? We, lo- we watch a lot of Disney. <laughs> Actually, though, um, I read the book uh, Mythos by Stephen Fry, and that um, explained a lot of the, the Greek gods and their myths in detail. And I was reading it, and I was like, this is hilarious. This is fantastic. I love this. We're not going to use any of it. Um, because it's just way too complicated, and it's not in the public knowledge. Um, actually, the Disney versions of the, the stories are what you want to use um, because people can relate to it. So we just picked um, what was in the common knowledge and ran with that. Which is really what you want, as you say. And you're not making a show for people with PhDs to come along and go, look how cleverly we're subverting established tropes <laughs> from Greek mythology. You're making a, a kind of knockabout show that's fast, funny, and and uh, is a talented circus production. So that's what you want. So that's Gods, uh, which is on until the 23rd of October uh, in the evenings at uh, Testing Grounds at the Vic Market in the Vault. And then the kids' show Prehysterical, uh, which as you said earlier, is kind of almost the same show, but with more clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Prehysterical is a fun caveman version. It's really fun for the families. It's at one o'clock at Testing Grounds on the weekend. Uh, for more info about both these shows, jump online, go to melbournefringe.com.au and you can check out headfirstacrobats.com for more details about the company. Just before I let Tom and Cal go, are there any other shows in the festival, in the Fringe, from colleagues, peers, friends that you want to give a quick plug to? Absolutely. Um, tonight there's a show on After Us called uh, Off Chops. It's a fantastic show, can highly recommend. There's also an award-winning show called The Barbaroi, which won the Best Circus Award in Adelaide Fringe in 2021. Um, that's on at 6.30 in our venue as well. So basically, if you head to the vault, you're guaranteed to see a good show. Gods, uh, Yuck Circus, Barbaroi. Any others, Cal? I oh. have um, not seen a lot of shows this month. I've been so busy trying to get the tent up. Uh, there's also a Circus the Show um, in the Spiegel tent. Yeah, so many great things. Check out melbournefringe.com.au for details about those shows and also for Gods and Prehysterical from Headfirst Acrobats. Cal and Tom, thanks so much for joining us in the studio. Really appreciate it. Very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>